I don't know about you, when I'm looking for a plumber, I like to read my reviews. HomeAdvisor.com gave me some reviews on our sponsor, Art of Plumbing. Called them. They arrived on time. Immediately found the plumbing issue and fixed it right the first time. I called them last year and it was great. I called them again this year because I had a problem again. They came out, they fixed the problem. They even gave me solutions to help stop the problem in the future at 541-9405. Welcome into Other People's Shoes. Of course, you know I am your host, Neil Matthews. Thank you so much for joining us today. And boy, do we have a treat for you all the way from the great state. It's not North Carolina, but it's sure as heck as close as we can get. One day, maybe. (laughs) But right now, from the great state of South Carolina, just a little south of my favorite state in the Union, we get to sit with a uh, board-certified clinical neuropsychologist. We'll get to that in just a moment with more than 20 years of experience in diagnosing of treatment of medical and medical uh, disorders in children, adults, and seniors. She's been in private practice as well for more than a decade. She's a speaker. She's an author. She's a podcaster. And much like Lucy and Charlie Brown, the doctor is in today. That's right. She's a doctor as well. She's a wife. She's a mother. She's also a great friend. She's become our great friend as well. Uh, She has experience in sharing of troubles and trials. She knows the pain of losing someone that she has loved as she also has the desire that she would help others through their trauma and through their illnesses. Help me welcome in Dr. Michelle. As I said, the doctors and Michelle, how are you today? I am awesome and I'm so excited to chat with you today, Neil. I am too. Uh, we did have a little hiccup. We'll just we'll just say that. So, but but I'm excited. So, uh, hiccups are aside. Let's just dive in. So, what size shoes are we wearing today? <laughs> well, this is probably the most unusual answer you've ever gotten on your program. Are you ready? We are ready. Let's do this. My left foot is a woman's size six. And my right foot, we're not exactly sure of the size, but I typically wear a girl's 12 to 13. But even that doesn't really fit that foot. Uh, That is a little different. Is there a story behind that? (laughs) (laughs) There has to be, right? I I probably should have prepped you for that. I'm so sorry. It's just part of me, so I don't even think of it anymore. Right. but when he asked that question, I was like, oh, my. Oh, we're going to go there. Sure. Yeah. When I was three, about three days after my third birthday, I became deathly ill and developed a really high fever of 107. And so the doctors were extremely concerned that if my parents didn't get that fever down, that I would die. And if I didn't die then I would be mentally incapacitated the rest of my life. So my parents did everything the doctor said to do. Alcohol rubs and ice baths, everything. 
and it wouldn't go down. And so the doctors told my parents to give me aspirin, not knowing that I'm deathly allergic to aspirin. So when my parents gave me the aspirin to take the ill, uh, take the fever down, I went into anaphylactic shock and was rushed to the hospital and they tried to pump out as much of the aspirin as they could get out. And doctors warned my parents, like, she's probably not going to live through the night. And when I did make it through the night, then they said, well, she's probably going to be mentally incapacitated and she's never going to walk again because she's going to have physical deformity. And I don't know, I became a doctor, so I don't know, maybe I would have become, you know, an astrophysicist or, or something had I not been mentally incapacitated, but I was left with physical deformity in my right leg and my right foot. And so I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of the Chinese women from generations ago where their feet were bound yeah, and they I, had this I, I super, super yeah. high arch. Uh-huh. That is what my right foot looks like, oh even goodness. after multiple surgeries. And so it doesn't really fit any normal shoe, really. We've found some that work, but my right ankle is fused, so I can't bend my ankle, so I can't wear high heels, and my toes are all fused, so I can't grip on shoes, so I can't wear, you know, like flip-flops and that kind of thing. So my husband and I don't ever say we're going shoe shopping, because that would sound fun. (laughs) We say we're going shoe hunting, because what we know to be true is that most designers do not design shoes that are the same style in a woman's size and a girl's size. So it's a little tricky and challenging at times. And usually if I find a pair, which actually means if I find two pairs, because I have to have one pair for each foot and then throw the other half away, um, then I usually, you know, get multiple colors if I can, just so that I have shoes. That's crazy. So you're essentially buying crazy. you're essentially buying two pairs of shoes every time because you have to buy every single time. You have to you you end up throwing one out, like you said. That yeah, I, I can't even yeah. understand that. That's that's craziness. Yeah. Huh. Well. Uh, so there you have it. Yeah. Who would have known? Just a little shoe question. <laughs> <laughs> that's good, right? I mean, we we need that perspective. We need to understand, you know, kind of what shoes we're in today. So that's that's interesting. Uh, fascinating, actually, even. Uh, well, I am wearing my uh, Jordan 32s. Um, they are North Carolina edition because I figure if I'm going to sit with a great doctor as you are, <laughs> I need to have great things on my feet as well. So so there we are. They are the Carolina edition. So we're kind of close. Again, in Carolina, I know you're in the South Carolina area. Now, are you going to have to be a Clemson fan being out there? Because, I mean, I could sway you to our Tar Heels. We, we got room on the wagon. You know, it would be easy for you to sway me because my husband's family, his dad and his two younger brothers, all live in North Carolina. So we have a an affection for those in North Carolina. So it won't be hard to sway me. Well, that, well that's good because we need some love this year. We're terrible in basketball <laughs> this year, which is such an anomaly. But I'm trying to just work through it. 
But uh, but I know your birthday just happened, so we just want to also wish you a happy birthday. So so there well, we thanks as well. so much. Yeah. yeah, we're really close in birthdays. We are. We're super close. I feel in like birthdays. we should have a party or something. We should maybe a surprise one, just like surprise, we're having a party. So getting <laughs> yeah. into this, doctor of neuropsychology. I got to be honest with you. I asked my Alexa, and I'm like, Alexa, tell me what a neuropsychologist is, and she gave me a terrible definition. And I tried to Google it, and I probably misspelled it because I'm not a good speller. But help us break down, what is a neuropsychologist? Think of a combination between the, the good parts of a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and a neurologist, and put those together. So a, a neuropsychologist is trained in clinical psychology, but then goes on for additional medical school training in brain behavior relationships. So when people come to me, it's usually because something's going wrong with their brain functioning. And it could be something like depression or ADHD or frequently have seen patients for uh, dementia in the older years or after someone's had a stroke or a concussion. And we sit down with them and we work with them for a really long time. It's, it's the better part of the day, so eight hours-ish. And we evaluate how their brain is performing in all different areas. So like attention and memory and language and problem solving and motor functioning. And once we see what's working well and what's not working well, then we can figure out, all right, what's going on and what can we do about it? And so patients have come into my office for all different reasons. And that's kind of fun for me. As, as you mentioned earlier, I've seen kiddos from... Mm, Maybe I'm thinking the youngest I've seen is about two months. And then I've seen people all the way up into their 90s. And it's a delight to work with them to help them figure out what's going on because so often people come in and go, well, we've seen so many different doctors and we still can't figure out what's going on. And I thought, well, because you didn't have someone do this evaluation. You can't just look at somebody and know that they have dementia or know that they've had a concussion or depression and that has given me a lot of insight because we talk about these invisible illnesses. It's real hard sometimes to have compassion for people when you don't know what's going on. And everybody who walks around with depression or anxiety or dementia or concussion, they're not wearing a label. But if you come in and you've got a broken leg, then everyone's like, oh, what can I do to help you? What happened? You know, and so it's, it's been eye-opening to me to help people understand that everybody that we see in life is going through something, but we may not know what it is. So just be kind, extend grace, extend mercy because everybody's struggling with something. You just may not have any idea what they're going through. You know, that reminds me of, of actually one of my favorite stories from the Bible. And I think you could probably resonate with this a whole lot more because you know, you're a woman also. Um, but the woman in the in the Gospel of Luke, she touches the fringe of Jesus's garment, and she's immediately healed. Now, the backstory of that, she'd been hemorrhaging for years, the Bible says, and she'd gone and spent multiple, multiple amount of money, doesn't say about how much, but lots of money, we'll say. And she kind of was at her wit's end, in a sense, like, I don't know what else to do, but she heard, of course, have heard of Jesus and then touched his, his garment, and then she's immediately healed, and Jesus says, hey, I felt the power go out of me, and there's more to that story. But but I, as you're 
articulating that so well, by the way, it kind of made me think of that. Like, because depression is one of those things that people can't see. They can't understand. They, they don't know why this is happening. They're probably kind of, in a sense, driving themselves in circles, trying to look for this healing or this, you know, kind of relief from it, but yet they don't know where to go. Right? That's exactly right. In fact, the majority of people who have come into my office with depression didn't even know that's what they were dealing with. And when we would do the evaluation and, and arrive at the diagnosis and the conclusion, and I would sit down and I'd explain it with them, one of two things would happen. Typically, they would say, I had no idea. And then the second thing is, is that they would feel relief to finally know there was a name for what they were struggling with. They weren't just imagining it. There was a bona fide name to give what they were dealing with. And once you know then what your struggle is, then you can be equipped to deal with it. But when you're still floundering trying to figure out what is wrong with me, you can't yet step into action steps to try to deal with it because you don't even know what it is. But that was eye-opening that the majority of people didn't know that's what they were struggling with. And so if they didn't know, it would be reasonable then to understand that their friends and family members didn't know either. And I can attest to that from a personal perspective because when I was growing up, my mother was from another country and she came to the United States and married my father and that was huge culture shock for her. But the entire time I was growing up in the home, she was struggling with depression. But I didn't know that's what she was struggling with. When I was young, we didn't have that label. I just always kept thinking oh, that's just the way she is. She cries sometimes, she's grouchy sometimes, sometimes she's just quiet. We didn't know what was going on. And once she got the diagnosis, then it was so much easier to have compassion and go, wow, she's been struggling with this for like 20 years. That's a long time. And then once she got the diagnosis and got treatment, things started to get better. But at that point, I was out of the home. But it has helped me understand the dynamic between so many of my patients and their friends and family members just not understanding because you don't wear a label across your head that says, be kind to me, I'm depressed today. And so it also helped me to explain to the family members the perspective of how can you come along someone who's going through depression. You can't just say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Because if they could, they would. Nobody wants to be depressed. Nobody wants to suffer like that. So it's, God has given me different insights through my growing up years and having gone through it myself and then being a doctor and walking alongside thousands and thousands of people who have suffered. Yeah, I again, I, I think it's one of those things that we just need to you know, kind of pull out of the closet and, and kind of pull out of the darkness and realize that this really is a serious epidemic almost. I, I think you could almost even say, I think you have said on, on other things, uh, other programs that you've been on, greatest threat right now to our vision and our identity. Is it depression? It is. 
it is, I used to say for years, for five or six years, when I would speak, I would tell people, by 2020, depression is going to be our greatest epidemic worldwide, greater than cancer, heart disease, and AIDS put together. And here we are in 2020, and it has come true. It is our greatest epidemic, and it doesn't just impact our thinking or our emotions. It's one of the biggest reasons for absenteeism in the workplace is depression. And so it affects our work life. It affects our home life. It affects our uh, time that we spend with friends. It's huge. But there is help, hope, and healing. But because there's still so much a stigma around mental health issues, it shames people from getting help and for telling people their struggle. And that's part of the reason I wrote my first book is to share, look, first of all, I'm a Christian. And second of all, I'm the doctor who diagnosed it. So if I could go through it, nobody's immune. In fact, the Bible says that. The Bible talks about the thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy. And when it comes to depression, he comes to steal our peace, kill our joy, and destroy our identity. But the really sad thing to me is that I've talked to many pastors who say, we don't have that in our church. Or, which my mouth just dropped open, like, sure, and you don't have people who struggle with addiction or pornography in your church either, I guess. But the other thing that I've heard pastors and church members say, is, well, then you must have unconfessed sin in your life or you don't pray enough. And I think, well, we can go back to the Bible and look at David. And David was considered a man after God's own heart. Yet when I read in the Psalms, I feel like it's spiritual whiplash because on the one hand, he's saying, oh, God, I praise you and how great you are. And then the next hand, he's saying, oh, why so downcast, oh, my soul. So David went through depression. Job went through depression. Jonah went through depression. We've got so many biblical greats, and I don't think God would have put their story in there if God was ashamed of them. I think God put their story in there and said, look, this is real life. You're going to encounter some trials, but you're going to get through it too if you keep your eyes focused on me. Excellent stuff there. I just, uh, again, you, you just, you, you bring great wisdom everywhere you go. I just feel like you probably just wake up and wisdom just comes to you, right? Oh no. <laughs> I, but I wake up and I know where to get the wisdom. Amen so if I that, don't right? spend time in the words, then, you know, I don't have it to give. That is so true. Uh, how dangerous is it if depression goes unchecked in our life or our loves one or, or our loved one, loved one's life? That's what I'm trying to say. Well, dangerous to the point that it can lead to death quite seriously. And suicide is on the rise. Just in the past couple of years, suicide in our teenagers has doubled. Doubled. They get more cases of teens in the emergency room for suicide attempts than any other condition. Suicide is our second leading cause of death among young people. So if it goes unchecked and untreated, ultimately, we can lose that person. 
So it's crucial. It's crucial that if you're struggling with more than a couple signs and symptoms to get in, see your healthcare provider, see a mental health provider. And we might want to talk just for a moment about what are some of those signs and symptoms because, like I said, yeah, people will sure. come in my what, office. What, what are those signs? That's a great catch. What are those signs? Well, one of the biggest things is a change in mood. Now, it doesn't mean that that change in mood is necessarily going to lead to someone looking like they're down in the dumps or crying all the time. Frequently, a change in mood can be increased irritability or agitation or even anger. And men and women often present differently. And children will present differently than adults who often present differently than seniors. And the reason why I'm, I'm taking the time to emphasize that is because no two people struggling with depression are going to look exactly the same. But that doesn't invalidate either person's experience. So that change in mood frequently for males can look more like they're more angry, whereas women tend to express it more in terms of being sad and crying. But it can go either way. There's frequently a change in energy level. Frequently it feels like those little tasks that are easy to do are just now too hard to do. When I was going through the pit of depression, I remember looking at my vitamins and my toothbrush. And seriously, the thought went through my head, that's just too much effort. I'll do it tomorrow. Literally, I couldn't make myself take my vitamins or brush my teeth. So there's a change in energy level. There's frequently a change in the appetite, and it can go either way. Sometimes you'll have a ravenous appetite, and you just eat and eat and eat, and nothing seems to quench that appetite. And for other people... They don't have any appetite, and they might lose weight. And the same thing will happen with sleep. Some, some people will sleep too much, and other people will struggle to get enough sleep. And there's often a change in interest. Those things that people previously enjoyed doing just won't hold as much enjoyment anymore. And so friends can say, hey, let's go out and, and go play tennis. And the person who's depressed might have previously always jumped on that and said, yeah, let's go. And now they'll be thinking, eh, I don't really feel like it. And so there are more symptoms, but those are the most commonly experienced symptoms. And you might experience just a couple of those, or you might experience all of them. But if you've experienced more than a couple for more than a couple of weeks, I recommend you get into your healthcare provider. And I say healthcare provider because so many medical conditions will actually bring about symptoms that mimic depression. It can be vitamin deficiencies or it can be heart conditions or um, various medical conditions will bring about symptoms of depression. So we want to treat the medical condition first if it's there. And if there's nothing medically that helps explain it, that's when you would come in and see a psychologist or a therapist or someone like me so that we can then address the real issue. So if your levels are good, your health is good, but you're just maybe sad all the time, you might be struggling with some depression on some level? 
from what I'm hearing? You could be. Yeah, you could be. Or you might not even feel sad. You might just feel like everything just makes you kind of testy. Maybe you snap at the kids more than you used to or, you know, coworkers are like, fine, fine, don't, you know, don't get in in a pinch about this. If you're starting to hear comments like that, someone's picking up on some kind of personality change. And there's no shame in it. Society has created this stigma around depression, but depression is a mental health condition and your brain is your largest organ. So when we look at it that way, depression is no different than any other medical condition. It's just that the part of the body that's affected happens to be your mind as opposed to your kidneys or your lungs or your heart. So there's no shame. It's a medical condition and there's help for it. You don't have to continue suffering. Great stuff, doctor. Uh, great stuff. Um, I, I do. When I, when I knew we were going to be sitting with each other today, I, I did kind of, uh, you know, we did some Facebook looking and things like that. There is a picture of you in a booth, much like Charlie Brown and Lucy. That's why I kind of alluded <laughs> to that in the beginning of, of the show. And, and I, I just, I don't know. I found that comical. It's probably very serious, but, but I did, I found it funny. So little, little levity to some seriousness that we just walked through. But, but you mentioned in, in some of your previous um, comments that you yourself had, had suffered depression and kind of gone through that. How did that change your view of depression? Because you walked through that as well. Huge. Huge. I'll tell you that when when I agreed, when I felt the nudging from God to write my first book, which is about overcoming depression, the reason why I, I agreed to do it is because I had people every week contacting me through social media or through um, my email or my website and asked me to help them. And they would be people like, like in Oregon where they couldn't just come into my office in at that time, my, my office was in Dallas, Texas, where I would get letters from people in Canada or Africa saying, please help me. And I thought, well, the best way for me to help people who cannot come and physically work with me in my office is to write a book. But I really felt like God said, okay, but we've had enough books written by a doctor. You're going to have to share your personal story. Well, up to that point, my story, aside from growing up in the home with a depressed mother, was that after the birth of our first son, I went into terrible postpartum depression and it was actually my mother who helped me figure out what was going on and this is why friends and family members are so important in our healing because they will often recognize things in us before we recognize them in ourselves I was a doctor at that point I was treating patients at that point but I didn't recognize the postpartum depression for what it was it was my mother who called one day and said honey how are you and as soon as she said how are you I burst into tears She said, what's wrong? What's wrong with the baby? I said, the baby's fine. I don't know what's wrong with me. The baby's fine. I'm crying all the time. And so she talked to me a little bit more. She said, honey, 
I think you're struggling with postpartum depression. Put your husband on the phone. And so my husband Scott got on the phone and my mom said, look, I think Michelle's got postpartum depression. As soon as you hang up with me, call her doctor. Do not wait. Call him immediately. Tell him what's going on so he can help her. And we did. And I got through that. And so at that, that's when I started thinking, okay, it's time to write a book to help other people. But when I felt like God told me to share my story, I thought, well, I'm happy to share about the postpartum depression because nobody talks about it. I've had so many friends. We waited 12 years after getting married to have children. So all of my friends had already started having kids and nobody talked about going through postpartum. So I knew that was an important part to share. But two weeks to the day after I said, okay, God, I'll write a book to help people. And I felt like he said, you have to share your story. Two weeks to the day after that, I became deathly ill. Seriously. I was in the practice seeing patients at the time, and all of a sudden I had this horrific abdominal pain. And I, and it continued for a couple minutes, and I thought, oh, something's not right. So I got my patient up to the front so my staff could take care of the patient. And on my way back to my office, I doubled over in pain and threw up and then passed out. And about that time, my husband was walking into the practice. He's like, honey, you don't look good. I said, something's wrong. So we went to the emergency room and went through two surgeries. And I was put on bed rest for five months. I was kept alive on IV hydration and nutrition. And I went from 113 pounds down to a skeletal 74 pounds, which is 30 pounds lighter than I am today. So sick. So sick. And that led to the most devastating depression because I found myself in my sick bed. I, I couldn't work. I couldn't be a wife or a mother. And I found myself thinking, God, if this is what my life is going to be, I don't want it. I don't want it. You've got to take me home to heaven because I don't want to live this way. And I'd never been at that point before, but it really opened my eyes to the suffering that even my patients went through, to the suffering that family members have gone through. I had so much more compassion for what my mother went through, but even so, I wasn't sure I wanted to keep on living. But I had children, and I thought, I mm, can't do that to my children. I can't. And so I started doing all the things <laughs> I had told my patients to do for two decades. I got counseling. I tried medication. I made sure that I was eating a balanced nutrition diet. I was getting rest. And then once I started coming around health-wise, started getting exercise. So I was doing all the things. I had told my patients who would come in to see me for 20 years. And those things helped. I want your listeners to know those things helped. Therapy helped. Medication helped. Diet and exercise helped. But for me, they were not enough to take the depression away. It still lingered. It improved, but it lingered. 
And I was devastated because I felt like a fraud. All the things I told my patients to do didn't take the depression away. And I thought, I can't go back to being a doctor and recommending those things unless I know it works. And while it helped, it wasn't enough. I was still struggling. And I remember crying out to God and saying, you've got to do something. I'm doing everything I know how to do, and it's not enough. So either you've got to show me the missing piece or you've got to take me home because I cannot go back to being the doctor and recommending those things in good conscience because while they help, they're not enough. And it was, it was like God spoke directly to my heart and my mind. I didn't hear it audibly like a big megaphone speaking into the room. But what I sensed him saying was, as long as you ignore the spiritual side of disease, it is like you are putting a Band-Aid on an infection and hoping it gets well. And that was like a light bulb went off. Because for me and for my patients, I had been addressing the emotional side. I had been addressing the mental and cognitive side. I had been addressing the physical side, but I had not been addressing the spiritual side. Up to that point, I didn't even recognize there was a spiritual side to depression or anxiety or so many of our medical disorders. So that began a journey of me really pressing in and leaning into God and saying, you've got to teach me. I don't know what you mean. And that's why my first book is called Hope Prevails, Insights from a Doctor's Personal Journey Through Depression, because it was a journey not just through depression, but figuring out what is the spiritual side that we have to address if we really want healing. And it explains so much because I had treated thousands and thousands of patients over the years and so many of them got better but there was always a handful that would come back and they would be worse off and it wouldn't make sense well once God showed me that it made perfect sense because if we're not addressing the root issue of disease of course it's going to relapse because we're not really dealing with the whole issue and so once I understood this. It changed how I looked at depression and anxiety and other mental and medical disorders. But it also changed my level of compassion. I'd always been a compassionate doctor. But having gone through it myself, I had so much more compassion for the suffering of others. And not just depression. Any suffering could be people who are going through grief or people who are dealing with their children who have autism or learning difficulties. It didn't matter. It, it upped my compassion meter so much. And that's one of the things that if you were to go to my Amazon author page and look at the reviews on my book, that's one of the things that is most commonly talked about is the fact that that book ended up being written 
not how I thought it was going to be written. I thought I was going to write this book from a doctor's perspective and, you know, give you all the clinical answers. But it changed the course of that book. So I ended up writing it about my personal experience and what I learned through it. So you've got the doctor's perspective with my medical training, but then you've also got my personal experience. And that's what people comment on the most. They say, I like that dual perspective because you can tell she gets it. And I do because I've been through it. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. I, I, I can't even imagine not, not only walking through the health concerns, but then to follow that up with, you know, being on, I mean, if I'm not articulating this correctly, obviously correct me, but on death's doorstep. I mean, losing that much weight and feeling just probably run down and just, you know, living off an IV. I mean, that's, that's insane. It's crazy to think about. It was horrific. Yeah. Yeah, It was. I can't even imagine. So I'm curious, do you, cause I, I, I firmly believe this. Sometimes God gives us situations that are for us. Sometimes he gives us situations for other people. Do you think depression was for you or do you think it was for someone else? Both. Both. It was for me first because I grew spiritually more during that time than any other experience in my life. And what I learned through that experience then changed how I treated patients. It changed how I parented my children. It changed how I help friends and family members. One of the biggest things that I learned through that experience on death door, but through the depression is that I had been believing lies in my head, lies from the enemy of our soul. You know, we have different voices in our head. We can hear the voice of God and the Holy Spirit spirit in our head, or we can hear the voice of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And in my case, he sought to kill and destroy both physically, but also occupationally. How could I go back and be the doctor if I didn't really have the answers? How could I go back to my practice and give hope? And so I remember thinking while I was so physically ill, but also depressed. One of the thoughts that I had was, I must just be joy immune. Well, that's not a phrase I'd ever heard anybody else say. That was just a phrase I made up. But I remember thinking it because I was doing all the things that I told my patients to do, and it wasn't helping enough. And yet, I would look at other people and everybody else just seemed to be, and it wasn't everybody. This was just in my head. So I was magnifying it in my head, which we tend to do when we're depressed. But it seemed like everybody else just had this joy and I couldn't get there. So I remember thinking, I guess I'm just joy immune. I'm, I'm doing what I told my patients to do, but I don't have joy. So maybe maybe that's just not meant for me. Maybe I'll just never experience it. I must just be joining in. And I thought this several times 
over and over and over, which you also tend to do when you're depressed. You tend to, it's called ruminating. You just tend to think on the same things over and over again. Well, one day I thought that, and then I heard in my head, that's not what my words said. Like, what? It was the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I said, what? And I heard the verse from the Bible that says, though weeping may last for the night, my joy comes in the morning. And then I heard the verse that Jesus said that I have come to give you joy, that your joy might be full. And it was like another light bulb went off. I thought, well, if that's what God says, then I can't be joy immune because he promises those things. That's a lie that I've been believing. And that woke me up to the fact that I had been listening to and believing so many lies. And that contributed to the depression. That contributed to anxiety that I'd had before. So many lies. And so having gone through this, I grew so much in learning how important it is that we intentionally pay attention to our thoughts and take every thought captive. So that depression was for me first. I needed that spiritually to grow in the word and to grow in the Lord. But out of that, God has used my ashes to help other people. So he has brought beauty for my ashes because now I'm able to comfort others with the comfort that he gave me through that depressive season, just like he promises in his word that he will do. So who was it for? It was for me first. But God never never waste our pain. I don't care what you're going through right now. You could be going through depression or anxiety or a divorce or bankruptcy or the loss of a loved one or a job loss. Whatever the pain is, I can promise you God will not waste it because it says in his word that what the enemy intended to harm you, God will use for good. And so my depression is used for good. And I can honestly say with all sincerity, now I'm grateful that I went through it. During the time, absolutely not. I never. I can imagine. But now, looking back, I can go, thank you, Lord. Not only that you allowed me to go through this, but that you taught me through it and that you're now using it to help other people. Now, make no mistake, I don't ever want to go there again. But fortunately, now I have tools, and I have surrounded myself with people and with readers and with listeners of my podcast. I've surrounded myself with people who, if I were to start to slip that way, people will say, whose voice are you listening to? Or they'll say, is that true? Like, show me, show me how that's true. And so I have given several people permission that if I start listening to lies, they can speak truth into me. 
And so I was not grateful when I was going through it. But now I look back and I can say, thank you, Lord, that I went through that. But that you were with me through it and you've taught me through it. And now it can help other people. And so that's why I speak and I write about it. Because first of all, I don't want anybody thinking that they're alone. Because that's another lie that I believed, is that I was alone, nobody understood, nobody cared, and those were lies too. Even when people didn't understand, God never left me. He understood. He wasn't going to leave me. Those were other lies that I started to believe. So I don't want anybody who is struggling in the pit of depression today to think that they are alone. Because I promise you, you are not. You have the God of the universe is with you and wants to help you. But frequently, he wants us to partner with him in that process. He could have waved his pinky and brought me back to physical health and taken the depression away. But I would not have grown and learned and been able to help other people if that's how he had done it. I had to participate. I had to get into the word and learn what God says. I had to learn what lies I've been listening to and refute them. Before I had gone through that, I remember hearing a very, very popular female Christian speaker. And she was so full of joy and scripture would just roll off her tongue. And I remember sitting in a conference and listening to her and watching her and thinking, I want that. I want that. But then I heard in my head, but that's too much work. And I believed it. I believed it, that it was too much work to get in God's word and learn it and learn how to apply it. But through that season where I was so physically ill and emotionally struggling with depression, God showed me, yes, Michelle, it's work. It is work, but it is worth it. Because when I had that first verse that came to mind about the weeping may last for a night, but his joy comes in the morning, I wrote that on a post-it note and I stuck it to my IV pole. And every time I saw it, I spoke it out loud three times. And the reason I did that is because scripture says, though faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so I had to get that word of God from my, from my Bible into my head and then from my head into my heart. And then every time he would give me a new scripture verse that just seemed to apply to what I was going through, I wrote that one down. And I would post it on, on my light switch and on my bathroom mirror and on the dashboard of my car and on my closet door. And I have pictures that show that by the end of that season and by the end of that illness, I had over a hundred post-it notes of scripture plastered all over my bedroom. And every time I saw them, I would repeat them out loud. And was it work? Yes. And there were days when I remember praying and saying, Lord, I, I don't know if I can do it. It's too hard. But then he would remind me of my children. Because you see, depression wasn't just in my mom. It was in my aunt and my grandmother and in the, uh, my dad's side of the family. And so, so many people had struggled with it. And the enemy had stolen so much from me and my family. But then I would think of my sons 
and I didn't want them to suffer. And so I would think I will do this for them. This is too hard and it's, I'm not worth it, but they are. And this is going to stop in my generation. And so I would do the work. But it reminded me of the story of the lame man in the Bible. And I really have grown to love that story because if you had interviewed me 20 years ago at the beginning of my private practice, I remember reading that scripture and the lame man who had been lame for years and years and years and years, he was by the pool of Bethesda and people would go to that pool to get healing. Well, he was laying there on the edge of the pool and and Jesus said to him, do you want to get well? And at the beginning of my career, I remember thinking, Jesus, like, what a strange question. Of course he wants to get well. He's laying by the pool. He's just waiting for someone to push him in. But now, having been in this field for decades, now I understand why Jesus asked the question. Because Jesus was really saying, are you willing to do the work? And are you prepared for what? going to happen when you get well because Jesus knew when the lame man got well he wasn't going to be lame anymore his whole identity was going to change he had to get a job he was going to have to support his family but Jesus also asked him do you want to get well because Jesus was going to make him participate in his healing because the very next thing Jesus said is pick up your mat and walk do something you've never done before And I had to do that. I had to get in the word. I had to start refuting lies with his truth. And so now I love that story because I also know some people aren't going to do the work. I've had many patients come in. I've given them the evaluation. I've told them the diagnosis. I've given them the treatment plan because I know what's going to work. And they will come back a couple years, three years, five years, 10 years later, no better. And I'll sit down and I'll go, well, here's where we were last time I saw you. Did you do X? No. Did you do Y? Well, no. Did you do Z? Well, no, because da, 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 da. And there's always an excuse. But of course they're not going to get better because they weren't willing to do the work. And it's work. But what I've learned is it's worth it. And I think that's so important. And and again, so much great information there, taking us on that journey, so exciting and so impacting to me. I know as a child and, and even growing up in the church and even things I've said to young people, you know, young men that I've had the privilege of discipling and, you know, kind of counseling, not on a clinical level by any means, but, you know, on a, on a spiritual level, friend to friend level of taking every thought captive. And I know that's super important to you because that's what you had to do in those moments, right? You really had to make sure almost like a reprogramming of your thought life, reprogramming of it and really holding that captive and putting it back kind of in the cage that it belongs in, which is the garbage cage really. And, and not allowing that to be the narrative to your life. Would that be accurate to say? That's 100% accurate. But the thing is, is that, Neil, if you had told me back then to take every thought captive, I'd heard that. I'd read that in Scripture. I mean, something your listeners need to know is that I was not a young Christian at that point. I'd been a Christian for almost 40 years. I grew up in the church. We were there every time the doors were open. So I'd heard the verse that says, 
it's important to take every thought captive. But I didn't really understand it. And that's when the heart gets sad because we can throw around these phrases, these Christian cliches, but we really need to break them down and understand what they mean because up until that point, I didn't really understand. And God gave me a schooling in what that meant. Now I get it. And now I help other people understand it. And I don't always say, you've got to take your thoughts captive. Because a lot of people will go, I don't, I don't even get that. What does that mean? But it's crucial. It's crucial because I can tell you as a neuropsychologist, we have somewhere between 50 and 70,000 thoughts a day. That is a lot of taking thoughts captive. Mine are mostly That's around penguins work. and Tar Heels, so just for the record. <laughs> and my wife, sorry, and my wife and daughter. Yeah, those are my four thoughts. So anyway, but but I know what you're saying. Like, in in theory, it sounds great, right? Like taking every thought captive, really like thinking on it. Like, is this a good thought, bad thought? I play a game at work a lot of times, like good idea, bad idea, because I like to pull pranks on people or tricks on them. And I'm like, is this a good idea or a bad idea? But I think what you're trying to say is, I mean, if we're going to simplify it down, and by no means am I trying to make it like flippant in saying this, but I think we have to say, is this a good thought or a bad thought? And if this is a bad thought, get rid of it. Like just trash it because it's not going to do any good to you. And I would even go further than that. And the reason is I agree with you. That's a great place to start. Is it a good thought or a bad thought? But a lot of times that can introduce shame into our life. I would go even a step further and say, is this a lie or is this the truth? Because I, that's I like really that the crux. I like that a lot better. Is this a lie because or a truth? You're, you're right on there. Yeah. It's easy for us to feel like, oh man, I messed up, had that bad thought again. And that can introduce shame and shame can lead us down the rabbit trail into more depression and more anxiety and shame never comes from God. God will gently convict and there again that's a churchy word. Basically, he will gently show us the truth because he wants to restore relationship between him and us. So he will show us you know what? That probably wasn't the best choice there. Come back to me. But shame is always always, always from the enemy of our soul because he knows if he can shame us, then we will be embarrassed. We will not confess our sins one to another because we're embarrassed and ashamed. And that will lead us to feeling even worse about ourselves. But if we will take our mistakes to God and ask for forgiveness, he goes, done. Already did it. Gone. So we don't have to keep feeling shame. But what saddens me is I don't think the church intends to do this, but I've, I've seen too many situations where the church will shame people for struggling with depression or anxiety instead of coming along and supporting them and trying to understand. And that's part of my mission 
is to help us as a church, not a building, but as people, the church, to understand and be able to walk alongside people who are struggling. Because we don't shame people when they have cancer. Well, sometimes we do, but it's not right. But we don't tend to look at people who have had a heart attack and say, well, that's all your fault because you were eating too much bacon or not exercising enough. No, we step in and go, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. What can I do to help? And that's what I want people to do when they realize that others are struggling with depression or anxiety because they're very lonely conditions. Great advice. And they need support. Great advice. She's a doctor, guys. We got to listen to her. Um, so that's just what I think. So you just got to do that. So I uh, a couple phrases. And I, I want to end with uh, two more questions. But but one thing that jumps out at me is this is from Toby Mack. So he's a Christian artist. For those that don't uh-huh. know, it's one of my favorite Christian artists. In fact, I got an opportunity to meet him a couple of years back. But he has this thing every day where he says, "Speak life." It's kind of his movement. Yeah. And so he uh-huh. had this picture on his speak life uh page or whatever on facebook's and it says at some point it has to go from being a highlight in the bible to being written on your heart sounds like you've really encompassed that in in a lot of ways and i I have and again i think you have to because if you don't you got to change the channel you got to change the song you got to do you know whatever it takes to really get around people that are going to challenge you in a good way and that are going to really push you forward. So with that, I I think the word contentment comes to mind. And I know for me as a young person, I'm a little younger than you are just by a little bit, I think, but, um, but I know that's a struggle for me, like finding contentment in my work, finding contentment in my life, finding contentment in my marriage you know, when I first got on Facebook, it was really awesome and great. And I was getting all these likes and comments. And then, you know, of course, starting the podcast, seeing all these downloads and why isn't someone downloading this? I thought this was a great episode. Why aren't people doing it? Struggling with that contentment, because I think sometimes for me and maybe others, it feels like it's an illusion. Like it's this horizon, Chip Ingram said once, it's this horizon that keeps moving that I can't touch. Why do we struggle with contentment so much? contentment or lack thereof really comes back to where our focus is. For example, comparison is the thief of joy. And I would tend to say that comparison and contentment are very closely related or lack of contentment, I should say, because if we are focused on God, and what he has told us to do, and we keep our focus there, it's much easier to live from a place of contentment. As an author and a speaker and a podcaster, I totally get what you're saying, Neil, especially because I've got publishers going, we need you to build your platform. We, you know, And so it would be so easy for me to constantly look at book sales or podcast downloads or number of likes, comments, and shares on my social media. But I know for me, that is a slippery slope down to discontentment because it takes my focus off my one reader or my one viewer or my one listener that God has called me to write and speak to. 
if I've done what he's told me to do, he's happy. So why wouldn't I be content with that? He's not standing there going, Neil, you really should have gotten 20 more downloads on that episode. No. When we do what he's asked us to do, the results are up to him. We carry this false burden that it's all up to be, all up to us because society says, if it's going to be, it's up to me. And that is not biblical. That's a lie from the enemy of our soul. So I've had to intentionally not look at my numbers, not look at my book sales, not look at my downloads and just go, okay, Lord, I'm going to do what you asked me to do and leave the results up to you. That's crucial because society will have us constantly comparing and we then think that we derive our worth from those numbers. But something I learned a long time ago that has really changed that landscape for me and that is that, you know, we tend to think we get our worth from what we do and who we are um, professionally. But when I was so deathly ill and I could not see patients, when I was on my deathbed strapped to those IVs, I remember thinking, well, if I can't be the doctor, what good am I? And the Lord showed me, Michelle, I don't love you for what you do. I love you for whose you are. You are mine. If you never go back to that private practice, if you never work another day in your life, I'm not going to love you any less. And if you go back to that private practice and you keep working 20 hours a day, I'm not going to love you anymore. And that, to me, unlocked the key to contentment. Because I'd been striving, working so hard, literally 20 hours a day. And in my head, I thought, well, if I just do more for God, he'll love me more. That's a lie. He couldn't love us any more than he already does. And so our contentment comes from resting in him. And so that changed everything for me. It's I, where our focus is. Yeah, I, I, I again, I, I, I don't know about you being a podcaster. The, the number one question, everyone. No, I'm not an author. Not, not as of yet. I, I can't imagine writing a book. But you know, who knows? Crazier things have been known to happen. But that's the number one question people always ask me when I talk about the show or I talk about people coming on. They're like, "Oh, how many downloads do you have?" So I think, and this is just this epiphany that literally just came to me as you're speaking. I'm gonna start saying one. I'm gonna say, "Yep." We we got we got one download, and they're gonna look at me and go, "You you have one?" I'm like, "Yep, one." Because we are looking for the one person that needs to download our show that needs to hear it. That's right. That's and I'm right. gonna start saying and that. You, I'm gonna just and go, you don't you, know you, who you that one today. person is. <laughs> you helped me today with that. So yep. the doctor has even diagnosed me. So there we are. <laughs> There, you got your two cents worth, I right? I got my two cents worth, right? That's what Lucy would charge Charlie Brown? That's, that's right. That's good. I'll send it to you. It'll be in the mail. Just look for that. So, okay. um, Michelle, I, I, I know personally because I've I've heard from, from other places, and, and even you've confessed this in, in prayer um, prayer posts that, that we do through the Christian Podcast uh, Association, but I know you're dealing with cancer right now. I know it's come back, and so yep. I know that about you, and so that's what leads me to ask this question. How do you want to be remembered? Because, again, you don't know how much time you have. It, it could be today. It could be tomorrow. Of course, I don't know that either, and I don't have cancer. Right. But, but how do you want to be remembered, and is that even important to you? It's very important to me. Yes, 
I, I do have cancer. But the interesting thing about this is that people, once they realize that about me, then they always want to know, well, how many more treatments do you have to have? Or how long are your treatment sessions? And I always answer, I don't know. And they look at me quizzically like, what? But we, this is not our first rodeo. My husband has had three different types of cancer. He should not be here today, but God. The doctors told him he had two years to live. That was 20 years ago. And God said, no, that's not my report. And then this is my second bout. And so I've learned a couple things. And one is that it's not over until God says it's over. And the other thing is that I've learned that our doctors can give us their best guess, but they don't know. And so uh, I can't tell you how many times either in our family or other people we know, for example, someone's been told that they're going to have 10 chemotherapy sessions, but they have to stop at eight because their body can't handle anymore or it gets prolonged and they have to have 13. So when I was diagnosed, I told my doctor, I don't want to know how many treatments I'm going to have. And that really surprised her too. And I said, here's why. I want to wake up every single day and say, thank you, Lord, that you gave me another day. Because you're right, Neil. None of us knows how many days we have. But I want to wake up every day thankful that I have another day and ask the Lord, how do you want me to spend today? I do not want to waste whatever days I have looking forward to the end of treatment. I want to live today to the full. And so what I want to be remembered for is that I used the difficult trials in my life to encourage other people and show them the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And if I get to heaven and God says, I did that, then I will be full. I want people, when they look at me, I don't want them to see a cancer patient. I don't want them to even see me as a doctor. That's just a label. I want them to look at me and see Jesus in me. That's how I want to be remembered. Great stuff. Um, Michelle, you're fascinating. I love you. I just, you're just such a delight. And uh, I wish we could be one day maybe face-to-face because I would just give you a big hug right now and just say, man, girl, you... <laughs> You got it going on. That's young people speak for your awesome, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. No, I mean that. healing. I, I really do. Um, you're you're so just positive, and and I think that is something our world desperately needs is this ray of sunshine that says, you know what, the sun's going to come up, and if it comes up tomorrow, I mean, going Annie on you, that's um, <laughs> your bottom dollar. It, tomorrow is going to be awesome, and you're going to make the most of it. And so that's what I love. I, I just love you so much for, for coming on and sharing that. I, I know Hope Prevail is, is the first book, but there's so many other books. Give us a, a quick rundown of everything and how can people reach you, and then we'll play a game to kind of end things. Sure. So the first book is Hope Prevails, Insights from a Doctor's Personal Journey Through Depression. Then we have the Hope Prevails Bible Study. And then my latest release just came out in September, and that's called Breaking Anxiety Script, How to Reclaim the Peace God Promises. 
And they can find those on my website, which is drmichelleb.com, or I'm on all the socials at Dr. Michelle Bankson, or they can find my books at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever books are sold. And then listen for my podcast, because if you want more hope, the podcast is called Your Hope-Filled Perspective with Dr. Michelle Bankson. And I love that name, that perspective, that word, because that's what we strive for as well, being in other people's shoes. So that's awesome. We, of course, Garrett, pay attention, link all of those. I say that because Garrett's not sitting with us today. It's a little early for Garrett uh, here in the West Coast. So, but it's, <laughs> yeah, sorry it's, about that. No, you're good. We, we, it's our fault. So, um, so there it is. So, uh, Michelle, you're not here, but we play this game senseless at the end of the, uh, end of the show. And I know your senses. Well, I know you know the senses because you're a doctor, but, uh, question, uh, number six is a wild card. So I'm going to roll on your behalf because you're not here. And this is crazy. You got a number one. <laughs> so this is crazy. That I like a, that. That you got a number one. <laughs> and and the reason why that is, there's a story behind that. So if you really want to know that story, you'll just have to reach out to me and find out that story. But uh, number one that. is this. is uh, How do you want others to see you? And we'll, we'll close with that. I want others to see me as someone who hasn't let the trials of life get me down, but let Jesus shine through me and through those trials. If that could be accomplished, I'd be pretty happy camper. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Again, uh, guys, go out and check out what Michelle is doing. She's doing some amazing stuff. Um, With that, We will kind of end our show with that. So, again, go check out what Michelle's doing. We, of course, will link all of that in our show notes. And uh, stay tuned till next week. Next Wednesday, in fact, we're going to have another episode right back here. So please join us then as we try on other people's shoes. I, of course, am your host, Neil Matthews. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned till next week. Thank you so much for joining us on Other People's Shoes. Of course, you know, I'm your host, Neil Matthews. Thank you so much to Michelle today for joining us. Let me tell you, the behind-the-scenes stuff, if I can only let you in, maybe one day. But hey, I just want to thank Michelle one more time. She was an amazing guest. Guys, go check out her book, Hope Prevails. We, of course, will link that on our show notes. And uh, Breaking Anxiety's Grip was the other one we, we uh, talked about. So if you'd like to check those out, uh, we, of course, will link those in our show notes. She is an amazing woman, and, and I just... I, I just can't say enough about uh how great she was today and how awesome she was so you think she was awesome stay tuned till next week because you're not going to want to miss this and here's a little sneak preview of that oh it has i mean even right now i still have the fears i mean that would be one of the biggest scars uh, this huge fear of loss and it has grown to encompass other areas of my life like i fear losing people close to me not that, not just future pregnancies that I may be blessed with, but just people close to me. And so, my book, holding on. I mean, I'm in general, I'm holding on to everything that I can. That's right. Strap in again. We are going down a road that few want to talk about. We are going to be sitting with a guest, a new author. And so we're really excited to have her on. Her name is Danielle. And so we're going to be talking about a very taboo subject. What that is, we have to stay tuned until next week to find out. That'll take place on Wednesday, of course. If you'd like to hear past and present and future episodes of this show, that can be done at OPSpodcast.com. That, of course, is a great place to bookmark. If you want to 
mark that and of course come back to it on Wednesday. If you would like to give to this show in any way to help Garrett and I out in getting this message out of being in other people's shoes and other people's perspective, we of course have linked our PayPal account in our show notes. We of course are a tax deductible organization. So please feel free to give. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, or just want to tell Garrett he's doing a great job, or maybe even myself that we're doing a great job, of course, you can call in our hotline. And of course, you can even text in. So that can be done at 203-548-7463. That's 203-548-SHOE-47463. You can't figure that out. Shoe though. It's pretty awesome. If you like us, tweet us, follow us. Of course, you can do all three of those things on the social medias. That, of course, being under OPS Podcast Show. That's what all of our social medias are under, under one name. Made it easy for you, made it simple for you. And of course, remember, when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. On behalf of Garrett and myself, we want to thank you so much for listening. Have a great week and come back next week as we try on other people's shoes.